All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I have one of our analysts over at BlockWorks Research, the one and only Matt Feiback. Matt, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I thought, you know, the best way to kick off the new year is let's start with kind of a, a summary of, um, you know, you, you guys on your show, Zero X Research called it sort of a Mount Rushmore, right? Of what were some of the major moments in uh, crypto this past year. But I think we want to be forward looking as much as we can, right? So you wrote, you and the whole analyst team basically put together this, this phenomenal compilation of what are some of the most major, uh, the major buckets to be paying attention to in crypto this coming year. So you sort of bucketed into ETH. Uh, layer twos, which are scaling solutions that are built on top of Ethereum, the Cosmos hub and sort of the app chain thesis, alternative layer ones, network infrastructure. And we're basically going to try to work through as many of those buckets as we possibly can. But maybe we could even just start with the, the quick summary of, of this last year. Um, what were some of the, the Mount Rushmore, the major uh, developments for you as you're kind of looking back? I think the first and foremost one that's you know hardest to ignore would be the Ethereum merge. So obviously, I think everyone listening probably knows that Ethereum successfully transitioned from proof of work to proof of stake, meaning you know it went from hardware miners securing the network to stake token stakers, people who hold Ethereum and then lock it up uh, to secure the Ethereum network. This was in the original white paper for Ethereum and has been like a long time coming. Everyone's been excited for it. It's now far more environmentally friendly, ESG friendly, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I think that this was probably the biggest thing for Ethereum. And then, of course, maybe even the most important aspect of the Ethereum merge is that inflation of the Ethereum token went down by at a minimum 90%. And it could be even more than that. At times, we're even seeing a deflationary Ethereum. So some are referring it to like ultrasound money, but uh, the ETH value proposition changed uh, a lot with this merge. Hmm. Let's let's talk about that. Um, so ETH, there's a whole section of the report that got dedicated to ETH. I think ETH frankly, feels like about the most consensus trade that I can remember uh, in crypto, which definitely has some good parts to it. And uh, maybe for those who've been through a couple of cycles, there's some warning bells as well there. Uh, I'd be curious to just get your thoughts on ETH, you know, now that the merge has been completed, like what are some of the milestones that we should be paying attention to? What are some of the narratives that you see arising around it? How do you just like start to formulate an investment case for it? Yeah, so I totally, it, it is interesting that there seems to be this consensus on ETH is, you know, at least consensus among the people that I speak to on a regular, regular basis within crypto that ETH is kind of the play, like maybe a better investment at the moment or for the short term than Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And I kind of agree with you that that does maybe bring some warning bells, but also we're in this bubble where like the people we speak to are just so ingrained in the industry that maybe it's a little different than, you know, if it was everyone on Twitter or something like that. Anyways, I'm looking forward to the Shanghai upgrade. So in right now, one of the biggest priorities on the Ethereum core devs radars is doing the Shanghai upgrade with Ethereum Shanghai. It, you'll be able to withdraw your Ethereum from the proof of stake network. Um, so first of all, there's like some things to worry about with that, which is since the merge, which I believe was um, call it four or five months ago, all Ethereum inflation, all proof of stake rewards have been locked. No one's been able to take money out of the network. People who go and deposit money into the beacon chain to stake it, to go create a validator, maybe through Lido or another liquid staking derivative, that, that Ethereum's locked away. You can't, you can't get it. So with Shanghai, it is a little worrisome that this Ethereum will once again be liquid. Um, but on the positive side of that, it's, it's also like a, you know, a huge, a huge value proposition for these liquid staking derivatives. And it should just be a, a kind of a net, net, net benefit to the whole Ethereum ecosystem. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. 
Um, I think building a value proposition around Ethereum would be mostly around how much use is the network going to get. So if Ethereum gets a lot of use now, it will be a deflationary token, meaning Ethereum will actually be leaving the supply rather than more Ethereum coming into the supply. So it's kind of hard to, to see how that would possibly be a negative for the token's value. Of course, you know, maybe I'm missing something, maybe it will be, but it's hard to see how that would be bad. So I'm very, you know, personally bullish on Ethereum. I own a lot of Ethereum, but uh, you never know. Mm. Matt, can you talk a little bit about the, or do you think it's relevant to talk about the dynamic of flows? So when you look at like a proof of work environment like Bitcoin, there's kind of structural selling pressure as miners basically need to sell Bitcoin to meet their operational costs. The, so the theory goes is with Ethereum and proof of stake, you don't have those intensive overhead costs and the sell pressure on the validator portion, which is sort of the replacement for, for miners, that doesn't really exist, right? So ultimately that from a flows dynamic, you have less sort of persistent structural selling pressure from the ETH side of things. Does that factor into your investment case or thesis for ETH at all? I think that a lot of staking rewards will still be sold, like just being realistic. Um, I think one trade that a lot of people are probably putting on right now or have been putting on for the last call it six month or a year would be like this delta neutral staking trade. So that would look something like you buy Ethereum, you short maybe like a long dated future or the perp or, or maybe you borrow it to short it. Um, so you have a delta neutral position, meaning no price exposure. Now you're just going to pocket that what's now about five and a half or six percent APR in Ethereum. Um, which is still better than even with you know high treasury high treasury yields is still a solid annual return with pretty low risk. So I think we will still see a lot of these emissions being sold off, but I definitely think that it won't be to the same extent as miners in Bitcoin and in proof of work who are actually forced to sell it to then buy new hardware. Um, obviously, like every year, maybe every two years, Bitcoin mining hardware and you know a year ago Ethereum mining hardware. That, for instance, with Ethereum, it'd be the new GPUs. Every year, NVIDIA and AMD would release new GPUs. And if you're running the old ones, there was a very good chance that you were no longer profitable, that your electricity costs were going to be more than you were actually making for mining it. So it is a huge change and probably definitely net positive and something to look towards, yeah. Hmm. Do you think there was a period of time, especially, uh, it's called like nine months ago or something, where there was a narrative, you know, Bitcoin is digital gold, which I think that still sort of exists. And ETH was kind of emerging as ETH, ETH equals FANG, right? And that's a very easy way for sort of TradFi folks to understand, you know, that they sort of get that Bitcoin is a, you know, store value app chain for money type thing. They sort of get that ETH is this smart contract layer, but they don't really know how to frame that in their heads. So there was this compelling narrative of ETH being FANG. Do you see that being a, a narrative when institutions do return to this market? And is that even good if FANG continues to get beat up the way that it does in <laughs> that it's being at the current time. I probably, so this is a tough one, right? Because in my opinion, like if, if I'm a fortune 500 company, if I'm a huge institution, I'm going to build on Ethereum. Let's say I'm launching an NFT as a, you know, sports team or something. If I was that sports team, I'd be doing on Ethereum. But what we've seen over the last six months, years, they, they haven't really been using Ethereum. They've been going towards lower, lower cost networks, higher TPS networks, um, higher transaction per second networks. So really throughout 2022, we saw that as Solana and Polygon. Now with all the Solana seen a lot of uh, negative sentiment over the last few months since FTX, SBF were such huge supporters of Solana and the ecosystem. Obviously, the price action has been extremely negative as well. But it really seems like Polygon's almost winning that Fortune 500 biz dev race. So if you, if I was going to call anything like a Fang chain, it would probably have to be, you know, Polygon, um, maybe like as new as new high throughput network L1s launch. 
for all I know, maybe Say or or something, one of these names that's coming out now. Um, Aptos and Sui haven't like Aptos didn't really see any adoption, but maybe it'll come back. The tech the tech works, so someone could go build there. I do think that both. I think that Ethereum transitioned into a much more similar value proposition to what Bitcoin was, which would be like this digital gold narrative. But it's worth mentioning that Bitcoin wasn't always digital gold. Like that wasn't always the value proposition for investing in it. Before digital gold, it was like decentralized internet money. So these narratives do form, move on. They keep, you know, they they transition and evolve. So I think we'll see this. You know, Bitcoin and Ethereum continue to evolve in their value propositions. Let's move on to the layer two space for Ethereum. So maybe for some of the more the more non-crypto natives that are listening, can you just describe what we're talking about when we say layer twos and then kind of just give us an overview of what the different solutions are that exist today? So with Ethereum, there's congestion. When there's too many people trying to transact at once, maybe they're buying NFTs, interacting with DeFi or just sending Ethereum or their ERC20s, it becomes expensive to use the network. Layer twos are a way of scaling the network with other execution environments. So some of these include Optimism, Arbitrum, and StarkNet, ZK Sync. There's two main types of, of scaling solutions through layer twos. That would be Optimistic and ZK Rollups. Optimism and Arbitrum fall into the Optimistic category, and ZK Sync and StarkNet fall into the ZK Rollup category. Uh, so yeah, those are, that's pretty much what LTs would be. Mm. I've got some more specific questions for you, but just for an analogy that some folks on this on this channel might find helpful is... You can almost think about this uh, Ethereum as being similar to current like payment networks. So payment networks are also layered, right? So for our largest, most secure transactions, we have sort of Fedwire, which sits at the base of everything, but not every transaction that happens needs the security of one of these enormous, very costly sort of base layer settlement, uh, base settlement layers. So what you have all the way at the consumer facing end is something like Visa, right? Which is processing thousands of transactions per second. Each one of those is slightly more secure, but it's not that important for a $5 charge at a Starbucks to be uh, to be secured like that. So what these payments networks do that are at the, you know, at the consumer facing side, they batch thousands of these transactions, they route them to banks, and then those get routed to Fedwire where they're ultimately settled. That's largely what we're talking about here with Ethereum, where Ethereum is Fedwire in this example. They settle the large, extremely valuable transactions, and it's very costly to do that. And then layer twos are sort of the solution that make it, uh, you know, affordable, cost affordable for users. And they're also, they, they sit where, where users are going to be interacting with, with crypto sort of networks. And as Matt was kind of mentioning, there are many different models, right? For different layer twos. So maybe as, is two of the broadest ones, right? There are kind of optimistic rollups and there are ZK rollups, which stands for zero knowledge rollups. Um, optimism being kind of an example of one of the, the optimistic rollups, right? Right there in the name. So can you just like give us, Matt, what are these two different models and how do you kind of think about optimistic versus ZK? Yeah, you just described it way better than me. So thanks for that. Um, when it comes to optimistic rollups, you're, you're basically, you're optimistic that most of the validate, that most of the people securing the network are going to act in the network's best interest. Um, with ZK, you don't have this reliance on like, you don't have to be optimistic. It's all just the ZK tech. You'd actually have to break zero, what's called zero knowledge proofs in order to, you know, have, uh, to, to steal from the network there is some like interesting the way it stands today it's a little you know these are brand new technologies optimism launched maybe a year ago um zk evms are brand new just coming out in the last few months for the most part and right now there's a lot of security concerns with each different individual network so i guess i think i'd have to break it down below optimistic and zk and into each, each individual one so like when you look at optimism 
Optimism is based on something called the plasma white paper, which was the way that Ethereum was supposed to scale, I think, like called 2016, 2017, and then it evolved. And now it's going to scale through sharding. Um, but anyways, what like so it uses this plasma white paper. I think it was written by Vitalik. And, you know, it's supposed to basically rely on these these op, these optimistic proofs. Um, I would say that the problem with optimism today is you have this multi-sig that controls the bridge. So there's a lot of security concerns where, you know, you have to rely on these central parties to actually secure your funds. That's not true with any of the ZK EVMs that we talk about in our year end review from Blockworks Research. Those are more uh, you, you don't have any reliance on a central party, but there's other security concerns like what if ZK proofs were ever, you know, broken, broken and didn't work anymore. So, yeah, I think that that would be the biggest difference. And then Arbitrum sits somewhere in between the two where it's you're still optimistic, but you don't have that bridge concern that you do with optimism. So basically, there are different you know trade-offs that each one of these layer twos make, right? Um, where there's some, there's you're always trying to scale or trying to decide in between that trilemma of, I forget what it is. It's like scalability, cost, and security, right? I think are the, the three things. So Matt, how do you, you know, if there's someone there who's sitting and trying to think, okay, I'm, you know, I'm interested in, in layer twos, but I'm looking for areas of opportunity to invest in, in crypto. I sort of understand what Ethereum is, right? It's sort of this base layer, uh, smart contracting platform. What it does is it sells block space, right? So however much it can charge for that block space, you can almost start to back into a discounted cash flow model of that, right? It's a little bit tricky because you're denominating that cash flow in Ethereum, right, which is highly volatile and there's an element of reflexivity there. But like I basically get, you know, how I would start to value a network like Ethereum. Help listeners to this show kind of bucket what is the opportunities around layer twos? How should they be thinking of them from an investment? Like how would you start to almost just think about modeling it? And where is it in terms of risk, like compared to something like Ethereum? So I would say when for like when you're investing in a layer two, it's almost more similar to investing in a dApps. So like when you invest in Ethereum, one thing you're doing that's nice is you're diversifying your exposure. So let's say that NFTs completely fail and I'm not at all saying they are, but let's just say that they do. Having Ethereum gives you exposure to NFTs, to DeFi, to Web3, to, you know, all these different things where you don't actually necessarily have to invest in one vertical. Um, you kind of get exposure to everything that Ethereum enables. So when you're investing in a layer two, you're once again kind of you're honing in on a single aspect. Like, you know, there's a chance that whatever layer two you choose might not succeed. So Ethereum is definitely kind of this broader investment. When you're looking towards like the difference between ZK and Optimistic, it's so early that it's really hard to like kind of I think that most people on my team would agree that ZK EVMs have a stronger value proposition. But, you know, it's brand new. They're not battle tested. So it's, it's really hard to kind of choose, pick and choose. Um, one thing that's really important is that they, so every ZK EVM will probably end up moving to the same model once they see one that succeeds it, but it's too early. We haven't seen like what, what's actually going to work yet. So I don't, I don't think it's really super easy. And then also there's not a lot of tokens to invest in, right? I think today, like pretty much your, the only tokens that really exist for layer twos would be like optimism and Metis. I can't really think of any more. There's probably a few more I'm forgetting. But, you know, in the future, there's going to be Arbitrum token, there's going to be Stark token. So it's like super early and hard to invest in at this point. I would say that the things you're going to want to look towards is which ones are offering the highest discount to transacting on Ethereum, the which ones have the strongest tokenomic models. So, you know, there's a lot of layer twos, for instance, may not have their own gas token. They may just use Ethereum as gas to transact on that network or are they going to use their token Um and there's kind of a lot of conversation around whether or not that's okay. Like, like I think ZK Sync and 
I think ZK Sync and Optimism have both said that they're not going to be gas. I know ZK Sync did. I'm not sure about Optimism, whereas Stark, for all I know, they probably will end up using it as gas. But that does give it a stronger value proposition, despite maybe being against the ethos of scaling the layer one. So it's really hard to invest in this space today. I would say the best thing you could do, really, if you're trying to like get involved in layer twos and, and keep an eye out, would just be use them. Just keep Continue to use them. Um, go on Arbitrum. Go on Optimism. Go on ZK Sync once it launches, go on, you know, StarkNet, use protocols on there, see which ones have the most vibrant ecosystems, pay attention to tokens as they evolve and as they come out. And uh, yeah, that's how I'd probably be playing it. And also the ones that haven't released tokens yet, there's a good chance that if you're doing that and messing around in those ecosystems, you might get an airdrop anyways. So, you know, that's valuable in itself. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah. Just to double click on a lot of what you just said there, really important when you say paying attention to the tokenomics, there's kind of like a mechanism that you'd be looking for for value accrual in the same way EIP 1559 got implemented, which whenever there's gas that's being used on the, on the net or whatever, you know, there's a demand for block space, basically you burn ETH, which is a very good mechanism for value accrual. There's also just like plain old uh, issuance calendar, like unlock calendars. So when you look at something like optimism, don't mean to throw shade at one particular team here, but the current uh, fully diluted valuation. So all of the tokens that have been created, the value is about 3.9 billion. The market cap is only 195 million, which means there's still an enormous amount of tokens that are going to be unlocked, presumably given to the community, right? Or getting people to do stuff for the, for the protocol, but those are all going to be dumped. So that's like a lot of sell pressure, basically. Um, and then just to your point about the uncertainty of the model and the amount of new solutions that are available, there are like 30 EK, you know, like uh, ZK roll-up solutions out there right now. Uh, there's an enormous amount. Everyone is so convinced, right, that this is the scaling roadmap for Ethereum. Huge amount of teams and capital has been poured in, which is awesome for like a user standpoint, right? You're probably going to get a lot of like subsidized um, and like different bites at the apple. So I think we'll, we'll get a good solution. But in terms of investing, a lot of capital is being thrown at it right now and a lot of uncertainty. So I agree. It's pretty tough investment to justify at this point, unless you have some specific knowledge. Yeah, I think that there's one thing that's for sure, though, is there's this narrative going around, call it crypto Twitter, VCs, you know, just people in the space that Arbitrum is like, it's a hot topic, you know, whether or not the tech's going to succeed, it's an optimistic roll up. So whether or not it's going to be able to compete with ZKVMs in the long term, that's a whole nother story. But like right now, it's clearly hot. Um, they're launching a token soon. So it's definitely one to pay attention to. I want to move on to Cosmos, the Cosmos ecosystem. So uh, you guys wrote some stuff about the Cosmos hub in general. Maybe we could kind of start with just an overview of what Cosmos is. Uh, for those of you who might not be familiar, it's another, I wouldn't even call it a layer one. It's uh, its sort of Cosmos kind of like a layer zero because the, there's a whole app chain thesis, which is sort of a blockchain for, for other blockchains. So Matt, can you just give us an overview of what Cosmos is and then we can get into the hub and Atom 2.0 and all that stuff. So my opinion on what 
cosmos is has changed a lot in the last few months and it gets mm-hmm. very gray area um mm-hmm. first of all cosmos hub or atom is a token it's a you know just a, a layer one and you can go build on it um it doesn't really enable too much and it was the first token in this ecosystem but when you're talking cosmos you're really talking the cosmos sdk which is just a tool that anyone can go use to build their own layer one um it comes enabled with proof of stake consensus through what's called tender tendermint consensus and it's very easy to go launch your own layer one blockchain there's a lot of value to launching your own layer one um, you get to control the entire stack you can use your own gas token uh, you don't rely on Ethereum block space. Those are just a few of the value propositions. But when it comes to like what is Cosmos, it gets confusing because, and, oh, and then the most, the arguably most important thing that comes with the Cosmos SDK is IBC enablement, which means that all these Cosmos layer ones can communicate with each other through the inner blockchain communication protocol, IBC. So, okay, this is what the Cosmos SDK is, but what if I go use the Cosmos SDK to make a chain and I don't enable IBC? Um, what if I modify some stuff but I use other things from it. Am I a part of the Cosmos? And I think the best example of this would be like Polygon, which does use the Cosmos SDK, but is not IBC enabled. And it uses like a slightly tweaked version of Tendermint consensus. So is that part of the Cosmos? Um, Is it all about the community that supports it? Like what makes something part of the Cosmos is very, very gray area and up in the air. Like a lot of people would probably say Polygon is more related to Ethereum than it is to Cosmos because it, you know, commits... um, I forget, it's like they call it a proof of stake commit chain where it, you know, has certain, it uses Ethereum security a little bit where basically they can roll it back to, to keep it simple, it uses Ethereum security a little bit. Um, Also, it's its own ecosystem, the Polygon ecosystem. So it gets really gray area when you're talking about what is Cosmos. Um, And the Cosmos hub, Atom, is definitely not Cosmos. The rest of the tokens and projects in the ecosystem don't even necessarily rely on it. So it's like, it's, it's a tough question even though it sounds simple. It is. I think I think what Cosmos, so Cosmos to me is sort of the collection of tools that you just mentioned, right? It's a novel consensus mechanism, which is Tendermint. That's how you sort of agree on and and it's very fast finality as well on that, on that mechanism. There's IBC, which is how all these different chains sort of talk to each other. And then there's the developer suite, which is the SDK. I think what Cosmos sort of got right and they got much earlier than some of the other crypto ecosystems is a laser focused on the application layer. So Ethereum has basically been very, very concerned about what you'd almost call like blockchain sort of security, right? So they make it so that you can permissionlessly launch any app and then use Ethereum as gas. But then you're also, you know, you're paying rent back to the Ethereum main chain and there's less customizability if you're an app, like a smart contract that's built in the Ethereum ecosystem. If you have your own chain, which is the Cosmos vision, you have a lot more flexibility in determining the parameters of your protocol. That's why they're so they're so big on the app chain. So as we move past this layer of infrastructure, which has largely been the layer ones that many of you will be familiar with, like the Ethereums and the Bitcoins, et cetera, although TBD, if anything, gets built on Bitcoin, um, you know, you have this, fo- they've got a, a focus on app chains, which is ultimately the level that's going to interface with consumers. So I agree. I think it's tough to even kind of pin down what Cosmos is, you almost have to point to a collection of different tools and elements, right, to get there. But for me, what's interesting about that ecosystem is, you know, a laser focus on app chains in general as the the layer that consumers are going to interact with. A hundred percent. But then it gets even a little weirder when you're looking at Ethereum's, you know, roll up centric scaling solution as 
you can basically create your own layer two or even you know one day layer three but we'll just stick with layer two on top of ethereum that you know is basically application specific so that's what dydx is currently dydx is a sorry for changing the subject a little bit but like dydx is a perpetual futures exchange that right now exists as a layer two on ethereum it's its own layer two so there's nothing else on it it's just dydx um, and they did that through starkware through stark x but they're actually choosing to go move from an application-specific L2 to an application-specific blockchain. And that's because they wanted to control the validator set. They wanted to be able to tweak the validator set so that it would be able to store an order book because today the order book is stored. So like when you place a limit order, it's stored on you know centralized AWS servers that opens DYDX up to censorship. So they wanted to go and fully decentralize the protocol. And today the best solution for doing that is a Cosmos app chain. But in two years, it might be a layer three on Ethereum. So it's you know, definitely agree with you. Application specific is the way to go, but, and yeah, Cosmos clearly had it from day one, whereas Ethereum kind of has pivoted into this model. So it is interesting to think about that. Mm. From an investment perspective, there's also sort of a central token, right? There's the atom, which is the token. And that there, there's sort of a, a difficulty in understanding what the investment case for that is, because when you have something like ETH, the token ETH is central to the layer of is central to the idea of Ethereum, the network, because whenever you use or want to write block space on the Ethereum network or add to the state of Ethereum, you need to do that. You need to pay for that with ETH, which creates structural buying. In Cosmos, you do not have that, right? You have each, you have a collection of different chains where you could use the native token of each of those chains to pay, or you could even use something like USDC, right? They give you that customizability, but also in with giving you that flexibility, they don't create that same structural buying pressure for Adam, which is one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to understand it as an investment. Would you agree with that? Yeah, hundred percent. When Cosmos, when Cosmos Hub Adam came out, the value proposition was supposed to be this this hub and spoke model, where all these different chains were going to use Cosmos as the main hub to to send to communicate with other chains. But what we've seen over the last year is Cosmos isn't even the biggest hub anymore. It's now Osmosis, which is another app-specific chain built with the Cosmos SDK. It's the biggest hub. So Cosmos hubs, Adam's main value proposition has kind of got completely turned upside down. Um, no longer is really a valid value, uh, no longer really a valid investment thesis for Adam today. That being said, they did the Adam 2.0 upgrade or proposal about a few months ago. Um, so they're launching interchain security, which basically means when you go and spin up a new app chain, you'll be able to rent security from Atom. Because these are proof of stake networks, the amount of the value that your token has is actually extremely important to the security of your network. Let's say you launch a new chain and the, you know, the market cap of your token, you could go buy 51% of the supply for 500 grand but there's a million dollars in you know, wrapped Ethereum locked up on your network, there's now an incentive for someone to go 51% attack your network, steal that wrapped Ethereum, and kind of just destroy your chain. What interchain security will do is it'll let you borrow Ethereum security, sorry, borrow Cosmos' security, borrow Cosmos Hub Atom security, and uh, which is, you know, I think right now about a $3 billion market cap, it would probably cost well over $1.5 billion in order to attack the network or something around that. Um, and that's like on the low side because you're obviously going to drive up the price as you try to do it. Anyways, this is a huge value up proposition upgrade for Adam. They have some other stuff in the work, like uh, the interchain scaler and just like basically cross chain MEV market um, and kind of some, I would say interchain security is like a very good realistic value proposition for Adam. 
Whereas these other ones are maybe like a little bit further out. They are, they're valid. I hope they work, but I'm not sure that they're necessarily going to be implemented in the, in the very near future. But anyways, they, they are the, the teams building in the cosmos are doing their best to have the cosmos hub maintain value and be a, a vital part of the ecosystem, even though maybe today it's not. Nice. Nice. Yeah. The interchain MEV market, that's how, that's going to sound uh, like compli- very complicated to folks that aren't familiar with it. You can almost think of MEV as payment for order flow. It isn't payment for order flow, but it's sort of like it in the same way that the way value gets extracted in TradFi markets is you don't pay for your transactions up front, but ultimately that flow gets routed from uh, brokerages, largely retail brokerages like Robinhood to like um, internalizers, right? Like Citadel Securities, and they find all sorts of ways to make money against that flow, right? They're not trading directly against traders, but flow is correlated. So people are buying AMC and they can see that with the flow, then they'll, they'll buy GameStop basically. And there, it's not exactly like that, but there are other ways where you can order transactions before they go, on, go into a block in such a way that you can extract profit, sometimes through arbitrage. So if you had access to multiple chains like Cosmos, like you would on Cosmos, right? If you could create a market for uh, MEV across multiple different chains, you could see how that would be very profitable. So that's kind of an interesting, I think that's a pretty interesting value proposition, honestly, for the hub. But we'll see uh, how well it gets executed on. Um, Let's talk a little bit about alternative layer ones, right? So some of the ones that you talked about specifically uh, were Solana, Avalanche, and Aptos. Start with Solana in general, because Solana is getting absolutely uh, shredded right now on Twitter and price-wise. So you just give a give us an overview of what is Solana? What are they going through currently? Yeah, so Solana is an alternative layer one. It's a basically Ethereum competitor, when it, many call it an Ethereum killer over the last couple of years. Um, kind of the idea is to have a smart contract platform, a smart contract network that's far more scalable, that allows way more transactions per second and throughput on the base layer. So it doesn't require these layer twos in order to scale. It's called, people today are calling them monolithic chains, chains where everything can happen on that base layer. Everything can, everyone, tons, you know, you could have hundreds of millions of people trans, in theory transacting on Solana without prices of, uh, without ga- like the price to transact becoming uh, exclusive and making it hard for you know people in third world countries to maybe send a stable coin to to someone else. Anyways, you know people totally understood this value proposition because Ethereum block space was so expensive. Today, Ethereum block space is cheap. There's actually abundance of block space on Ethereum and way less demand than the, like there's an abundance in the fact that there's these layer twos to transact on and there's way less demand to transact. So it's actually really cheap. Um, so that kind of gets rid of one huge value proposition to Solana. Additionally, Solana was being very propped up by, uh, propped up's not the right word, but Solana was extremely supported by FTX, SBF. Um, their biz dev team was amazing. They had a lot of kind of Fortune 500 companies that were interested in building there. They attracted a lot of people from like Meta, Instagram. Um, you know, you pick a company that like a lot of them would go and tr- like build on Solana instead of maybe building on Ethereum. Over the last three months since FTX, got not even over the last month and a half since FTX fell, since SBF, uh, you know, based, since it came out that he was stealing money, sending it to Alameda, Solana has seen an extreme, extreme downtrend in price, in TVL and in use. Um, we're seeing some of the biggest, like recent, most recently we saw one of the biggest NFT projects on Solana, Utes, and they're moving over to Polygon. It was announced that Polygon, did, the biz dev team did pay for that. But at the same time, we are seeing that uh, naturally occur as well, where people are moving to other chains, don't have as much interest in, on building on Solana. 
Um, but yeah, so that's kind of something we've seen over the last month and a half. So what's your prognosis there? Do you think they're this is kind of it for them and there's no value prop now that Ethereum has launched layer twos? Is there any sort of bull case to be had or should we be basically like yeah, Solana was something that happened uh, you know, in 2020 to 2022? It's a tough question. Um, it's a tough question that I don't know the answer to, but I'll give my opinion, which is that I think Solana does still have a value proposition. I don't think it's dead. I think that there's a lot of good building. The fact that they have Jump support, Jump is a huge quant hedge fund and Solana is kind of their their baby. Um, so, you know, the fact that they're building there, I think that Solana might even be oversold right now, in my opinion, not financial advice. Definitely. I don't even own any souls. But anyways, I think it might be underpriced right now. It got completely dumped, has this terrible sediment, bad, you know, tons of shorts coming in. Um, I think Sol does have a value proposition in the future. I just don't think it's going to be as an Ethereum competitor. I think that layer ones, monolithic layer ones, as they're called, will still have maybe niche use cases. So maybe it'll be gaming or something very specific. But I think Solana just kind of needs to find that one, that one, that one use case, and uh, that it probably definitely could still be around in the next bull run. That being said it's not guaranteed in any way, shape or form. Um, while I would say with a high degree of confidence that Ethereum will continue to see developers build on it, to continue to see use for DeFi with NFTs, with gaming, with, you know, tons of use cases. I would say that my confidence in Solana is more in the, you know, flip a toss in the coin toss. But um, I would say that it has a, it's extremely valuable chain. It's good technology. Um, it's very scalable and the people building there are intelligent. So I do have faith. I'm I'm more optimistic on it than than people are in general. I I'm doing this not from the lens necessarily of analytics, right? But for more from like a pattern matching uh, recognition sort of thing. I haven't seen a chain that has gained as much mind share as Solana uh, ultimately not do anything. Uh, I think it's pretty different from some of the. I, I think a lot of the comparison that it gets are unkind, like to EOS or I don't want to pick on it. I'll pick. I'll pretty safely pick on EOS. It gets compared to EOS a lot. I think it's pretty different. Um, I also just think that there's, you know, one of the, the, the difficulties that people, one of the challenges that I see in the ETH roadmap, the scaling roadmap that they've undertaken is people generally think of layer twos as being these sort of benevolent extensions of Ethereum, right? And the trade-off, right? Ultimately, people want to have their cake and eat it too. They want the price of Ethereum to go up. So they have one five, five, nine, they implemented the burn. But they also need the price of transacting on Ethereum to go cheap to be cheaper to continue to attract new users. To your point before, so layer twos uh, were basically that's the solution, right? So that they can have the price of ETH go up and have transactions be cheap. The problem is each one of these layer twos have their own token, and there's likely going to need to be layer three rollups that are built on top of those layer twos. So when you have two, when you have an ETH token, and then each individual ecosystem has their own token. Combine that with the fact that most users and therefore the leverage are going to migrate to the layer twos. When those incentives start to bump up against each other, it's not one harmonious group anymore. When you have financial incentives that are, you're going to have financial incentives that are different. The big advantage of monolithic L1s is that you have one financial instrument. So if Solana can have all of that on one layer, basically, if they can scale everything to one layer, then you sacrifice something in the way of security. You also sacrifice something that the people in ETH find very important, which I also think is super important, which is the cost of maintaining a validator, right? So right now the cost of maintaining a validator for Ethereum is very low, very cheap. 
the big compromise that Solana is making, why they don't want to have layer twos is the cost of maintaining a validator in Solana is like 100, 100 grand or something like that. It's very, very expensive, but it's never going to be as cheap as Ethereum. So that's ultimately what you're talking about, sacrificing. Um, we'll see. I think it's going to come down to whether or not Anatolian Raj and the team over there can kind of get enough BD and developers building and, and all that kind of stuff. So we'll see. Um, but I, again, this is just me being like, I very much remember, you know, whenever you start to feel the consensus building and you get these bull episodes and everyone's just really, really certain of something, it very rarely plays out like that. So I guess we'll see. Um, let's talk about some of the other layer one solutions like uh, Avalanche, right? So Avalanche, uh, they, they're sort of an EVM, right? So they've got, they're building actually leveraging the Ethereum virtual machine. Uh, and they've got a different scaling solution, which is called subnets, which is kind of a form of horizontal scaling, actually somewhat similar to, to Cosmos. So can you just, what are your thoughts overall on, um, on Avalanche as a chain? <clears throat> yeah, so Avalanche is very similar to Cosmos. It's a little different in that their value proposition is you should build on Avalanche's C-chain, which is their EVM, EVM compatible network. And then if you, if your network sees enough success, so you become, you become, you know, the most used DAP on, on Avalanche, then you build your own subnet, which is basically your own chain. One thing about Avalanche that Avalanche subnets that isn't true with Cosmos um, app specific chains is that Avalanche subnets have to be validated by AVAX CNET, like by people that are already validators on the Avalanche network. This comes with the negative of um, builders don't control the full stack. There's not really as much you can do with your val like. Like how I said earlier that DYDX is going to, one of the reasons they wanted to move to Cosmos was they can control the validators and have them store the order book. You can't do that with Avalanche. But one benefit is that these are these are validators holding a lot of Avalanche. So if subnet see success, the AVAX token in theory should also be going up and see success. They just released literally, so I think it was uh, a month ago, they had something called the BAMF 5 upgrade, which enabled, and the, this was put into execution, I believe a week ago, and we're recording on December 30th. It's called AWM, which is their version of IBC. So before subnets couldn't communicate, this made it a very, very weak competitor to Cosmos. But now with AWM, um, it's actually like a legitimate competitor. Subnets can, can there's composability between subnets, and this is still you know being worked out. It's not perfect. It hasn't really been implemented uh, in it hasn't really it's there hasn't been any real use cases for it yet there no one's really used it but it's possible now so it's it's kind of far more interesting um and this is brand new brand new so i need to do more research into it and the security assumptions of awm versus ibc but it does make it far more interesting than it was even two weeks ago avalanche also saw something similar to solana where kind of solana had ftx as this like huge proponent of the ecosystem avalanche had the same thing in three arrows capital three ac who also uh was exposed as what looks like over leveraged fraudsters. So, you know, a not great look for the ecosystem and a lot of investment kind of left, like whereas the rounds before were getting filled at really high valuations after 3AC fell, that investment in the ecosystem kind of stopped. But uh, I would tend to say pretty much the same thing I said for Solana. And one thing I would say about all alt layer ones and layer ones in general and Ethereum's included in this, the main, I think the main thing that brings value to these ecosystems is the developers building in them. It doesn't really matter how much investment you get. It doesn't really matter anything else. It's just the quality of the dApps you're building. Are they attracting, you know, I could go use DeFi and Solana, Avalanche or Ethereum on layer twos. It doesn't matter. It's just which perps exchange do I like the best, which has the best user interface, which has the, you know, 
the the big the most liquidity. So I think that at the end of the day, it is really all about the developers. Let's talk about uh, real quick, and then we can move on to network infrastructure, which is like. We, you wrote specifically about Aptos, but maybe we could talk about almost Aptos and Sui in the same breath. Like, can you just describe what those two solutions are, what future they possibly have? Yeah, so both Aptos and Sui were developers and researchers and, you know, personnel from the Facebook Libra chain that never launched, the defunct Facebook Libra chain, which became DM, but whatever, Libra. They, you know, they left. They weren't allowed to launch their chain for regulatory reasons, whatever. Um, There's a, a whole bunch, a whole slew of reasons that they didn't end up launching. But the people, the people that are real developers went to two different teams, to Aptos and Sui, and they said, we're going to launch this original vision of what Libra was supposed to be. Aptos launched uh, two months ago, three months ago, and saw zero development. No one was interested. Anyone who invested in it on the public market lost money. It came out at this huge, fully diluted valuation, meaning so like the total value of all the tokens, including the ones locked up and yet to be introduced into the circulating supply, was just in the, I believe, tens of billions at the time of launch for Aptos. Sui still hasn't come out yet, but we'll likely see a very similar situation, in my opinion. No one is really interested in it. VCs can mark their investments in the green while, you know, people who actually bought it on the open market retail kind of got screwed over and just lost money. So I think we're going to see a big trend away from what I call VC chains, these chains that come out at huge FDVs. Um, and, you know, it makes it very like it's kind of the exact same thing we saw with FTT token and with with Sam Bankman Fried, where he borrowed against this token because it's supposedly at a $10 billion valuation. But if you tried to market dump $2 million of it, it was down 20%. So I think that we uh, tend tend, I think we trend away from that in the future. This is also a personal theory, but I think one of the problems with those, the reasons why these like VC heavy chains never ultimately take off is what you need, what all these layer ones ultimately depend on is this sort of ecosystem of independent media and evangelists to sort of promote them, right? And the easiest way to do that is to have people make money off of your token. So the problem with these VC chains, which are kind of down only, right? And you can go back and look at, I forget, it's gone through so many different rebrands, but like Definity, if that isn't, maybe now it's internet protocol, internet computer protocol or something like that. But it was this very hyped, very VC heavy type chain. And it, you know, if you look at the chart, it like goes, you know, live here and it's been, you know, it's down 96, 97% or something with the course of its life. So you never had, it never generated any excitement within the public because the perception real or not, but real in practice was that people just dumped as soon as it, as soon as they could and it became public. And why would I want to own something that all the, the big investors that owned it before me at fractions of a cent were dumping. So I think that's one of the struggles as well of those uh, sort of down only VC chains. Yeah, it's like engineered exit liquidity where the whole the whole business model is that once it becomes available to dump, you're going to dump it on retail and make money, but only VCs are going to make money. And it's not something that I'm a big fan of, but I could see why VCs would like that. <laughs> I could do. I could do, actually. Um, all right, let's get into network infrastructure in general. So you call out a couple of different buckets here, one which is oracles. So when you're talking about oracles in crypto, you kind of have to talk about Chainlink and Link. Um, but you've mentioned Pith in there as well, which is sort of a more institutional product. Uh, and then bridges. And when you're talking about bridges, it's really hard to not talk about the hacks basically that happened uh, from bridges. So um, walk us through Matt. like, what are you talking about when you're talking about sort of network infrastructure? I've also heard it called middleware for crypto. Um, and what, why are the, these two 
categories of oracles and bridges particularly important? Yeah, so these are basically pieces to the puzzle that can't be built as dApps on top of Ethereum, but are absolutely vital to the super popular dApps that are built on Ethereum. So when you look at DYDX, it relies on price oracles in order to calculate a funding rate, um, meaning like, so if there's a, if it, if the asset, if ETH is trading at a discount, then, um, you know, longs should be paying shorts. And if it's trading at a premium, shorts should be paying longs. They rely on a price oracle, so chain link in order to get that data. In order to liquidate collateral, you need oracles for, so for like MakerDAO, Compound, Aave. So basically these are just like super vital pieces and almost every, almost all these protocols use Chainlink. I think all the ones I listed do use Chainlink. Um, so Chainlink is super vital. It's crucial infrastructure, but it can't really be built as a DAP on top of Ethereum. It needs to, it's kind of needs to be its own thing. Um, you, yeah. So in any ways, like if that's why we call them infrastructure bridges as well, like, you know, you can't, it's, it's just stuff that's required. Like when you want to bridge, so if you want to go from Ethereum to an L2 instantly, so there's, there's native bridges, but if you want to do it instantly, you're going to need a bridge. Or if you want to go from Ethereum to Solana or Avalanche or Aptos, you're going to need a bridge in order to do that. So these are things that can't be built on Ethereum, but are required for the kind of, for the use cases that have been, that have already been built. Uh, yeah, that's what I guess we would call middleware. Mm. And what are the, what are the trends there for investors who are again, trying to like, okay, so buckets, right. Of things that you could possibly uh, invest. There's like layer ones, right. And each layer one has its own. There's obviously Bitcoin, which is Joe. It was kind of the original app chain, right. It's got a very specific purpose, which is, you know, store value money, like chain, right. Money substrate. That's all it really does. Ethereum. And then there are competitors to Ethereum sort of, uh, which is basically a, a smart contract layer operating system right for apps to be built on and then within that there's layer twos which are theoretically higher reward but also much higher risk as well so you kind of need to balance Mm -hmm. that middle middleware you know network infrastructure is sort of this other bucket right which provides these services they're sort of like you know uh higher layer uh, infrastructure like oracles right so all these different on-chain uh, DEXs, basically they need to understand what the price of different assets are. There's Infura, which sits even like lower in the stack, which is an RPC sort of provider. So like, how do you bucket this group of infrastructure providers like the, you know, the Infuras of the world, the chain links of the world, uh, et cetera? Yeah. So I think bridges and oracles, which is how we broke them down are a good way to do it. And then you would, I guess you would also another crucial one that we don't really talk about too much, but would be wallets. Um, and the RPCs that those wallets interact with. So those would be the three things that come to mind. Um, can think about a little more and see if any pop in my head while I keep talking. But yeah, you could invest in like the bridges sector, you can invest in oracles, uh, or you can, you know, and this would probably not be as a token. I know it wouldn't be as a token, but you could invest in wallets through, you know, maybe VC investments or eventually maybe one day on the public market. Oh, and exchanges. Matt, let's like zoom out for a little bit and just, you know, we're going to be entering 2023 here, which God willing is a better year than 2022. Uh, crypto, a bit of tough year for crypto as a sector. Where do you see us sort of trending, right? I know none of this is financial advice and you don't have a crystal ball and, and all those sorts of obligatory caveats that you always need to include uh, with this sort of prognosticating. But where do you think we, what does this next year feel like, both in terms of price action, you think, for the overall space? And then... Like anything else, I mean, are we are we shipping more product or is the negative sentiment going to continue? Like, how do you think about it almost from a sentiment and a price standpoint? I think we've seen the worst of it. 
I think that, you know, we've seen a lot of very terrible dominoes fall. I don't think the last one's fell yet. We might have a couple more. I'm not saying it's completely over, but I think we've seen the worst of it. So I think sentiment wise, you know, that there's not going to be, I hope that there's not some crucial, terrible event like a USDT DPEG or, um, you know, a Binance failure or something like that, that would be, in my opinion, pretty disastrous and cause multiple years of bad sentiment. Um, but at the same time, I do think it's going to take a little while for investors, especially those outside of the crypto space and those they got burnt in FTX or in 3AC or whatever to get over what happened. I don't think it's going to be immediate. I think it might take, call it a year or two. But at the same time, like I said, I don't think it's going to you know be like terrible or worse. In my opinion, prices probably won't. I don't think prices are going to really like have some huge rally where we get to all time highs for the next call it two years like i i just don't see it um I, mean, I think two years is about the right amount of time just for like kind of stuff to fade out the new wave of people to come get involved for us to really buckle down build new stuff build value um build build rails so that you know more people can come get involved in the space institutions can get more involved in the space i think two years is about the right amount of time i think that within those two years there could be a lot of volatility but that that's you know just uh, you know what the about the time the time frame that i see until we could have like kind of like a completely maybe new cycle year and a half two years i think that we'll see a lot of investment in layer twos i think ethereum will be a huge focus personally i'm a fan of bitcoin i don't think bitcoin's going away i think it's bitcoin dominance might go down i don't know if it'll ever go back to 60 70 percent bitcoin dominance but i don't think it's going away a lot of my coworkers who co-author co-authored this piece with me are probably sorry about that would probably disagree and are not a fan of bitcoin um but yeah anyways that's kind of how i see it i think that we kind of tend like trend sideways maybe we could even double or triple from here we could see you know but we could see ethereum at two or three thousand dollars we could see bitcoin at 30 or 40,000 dollars but i don't think that we're gonna have like this huge bull run big green candles risk on sentiment and then obviously it totally depends on the macro environment too like if you know if we're if the stock market's going down for the next three three years like can crypto really rally i don't know the answer to that i think it probably can but that's something that we've never seen you know the entire time crypto has existed the the greater markets have been pretty much up only so it's kind of unprecedented territories for the next you know foreseeable future and you would probably know more about that than i would I don't know anything. I'm, I'm guessing just like you, but I, but I agree. It's, we are, we are experiencing our first crypto bear market within the wake of a broader macro bear market. And, you know, depending on your perspective, we're heading into a somewhat like a shallow looking recession in 2023 or something that's much deeper right, in a hard landing, right? The guys like who really understand the stuff. And if there was as close to a real life macro crystal ball, you know, Guys like Stan Druckenmiller would have it, and you just have to listen to what he's saying about this next year to not be super, super rosy. But, you know, I tend to agree with you in terms of the worst of it being behind us. I mean, usually the large unexpected bankruptcies mark the bottom of, of these blowups, not, you know, the beginnings. Uh, we've seen an enormous amount of blowups every day that we go without getting another one, God willing, knock on wood. Uh, I think our outlook gets a little better. And, you know, if you haven't done this before, what I would say is the, the last year has been highly emotional for a lot of people um, for really good reason, right? You saw big projects that people had a lot of faith in explode. You saw the uncovering of stuff that verged on like bad and pretty unadvisable behavior and risk management practices to outright, you know, generational fraud. 
I, I'm not even sure if we alleged fraud, but he's been charged by the U.S. government. So in the form of Sam Bankman-Fried and everything that he was doing between FTX and Alameda. Um, but I'm not sure if people are ready for the next stage, which is apathy and boredom. It's a different type of struggle. You know, you have to figure out a way to stay engaged and stay focused and, you know, that, hey, number go up uh, thing or the, hey, I can't look away from this, uh, you know, shit show train wreck thing. That energy that both of those things provide you is going to be gone. So you got to find natural interests and ways to keep yourself engaged. Um, so it's kind of a different struggle, but I think that's the the new challenge uh, that lies ahead for 2023. Yeah, 100%. And realistically, the the, the best solution to like the bear market blues is you got you to gotta also find things to ground you. You know, like for me, it's like going to the gym, picking up a new hobby, gardening, something that I've never done before, proving that like, you know, whatever, that's definitely what are important. Your, what are your new hobbies that you're looking at, Matt? Okay, give, us a, give us a peek into the life of Matt Feibach. So far, um, not really any new hobbies because it hasn't been too bad yet. Uh, you know, two, an hour a day in the gym, meditation, listening to podcasts, kind of just, mm. you know, general general mental health, just keeping taking care of myself physically, mentally. Um, this, is, I guess, is my third bear market now. So this one feels way better than the last two. Like, you know, 2014, I was down bad. <laughs> 14-year-old kid just lost a lot of money. 2018, it was a little better. This time, you know, it's... I think I think it's okay. Um, you know, I, I know that our industry is legit; that we're here to stay. So, it's it's all good. I agree with that. All right, Matt. Thanks very much uh, for the great work that you do at, at Blockworks Research. And guys, we'll link uh, in the show notes here. So we we just covered sort of the high level, Matt, uh, and the whole team gets into a lot more detail in the year end review, and that was brought to us by MetaMask. So thanks, MetaMask, for unlocking that. Um, and guys, uh, Matt is frequently a guest on Zero X Research, which is a podcast that's hosted by our analysts. I uh, slack them this uh, hopefully at least once a week, but it is one of our strongest uh, new shows, especially on the crypto side. Thanks for you, DGENs, who are listening. So Matt, thanks very much for coming on, man. This has been a great episode and uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And just make sure you check out our 2022, 2022 year-end reviews. We have two of them. Mike and I just kind of went over the the DAP, the layer two, layer one, and infrastructure one. We also have a DAP and protocol, like, like a DAP layer specific one that we just launched yesterday. So definitely check those out. They're free. And uh, thanks MetaMask Institutional for, for unlocking them. I really appreciate you having me on. Mm-hmm.